парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца нашей земле... Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Drugs are a constant feature in our modern life. Whether it's the legal drugs peddled by pharmaceutical companies or the illegal ones off the street, their wonders and dangers are constantly with us. We live on Dope World, a global trade fueled by the desire and need to get high. So how does Dope World look to a former drug dealer? And how does the history of drugs connect the United States, Russia, the Philippines, and virtually every other corner of the planet. Niko Vorobyov, a former drug dealer himself, gives us his insider's view. Niko Vorobyov was born in Leningrad, Russia, before moving to Great Britain. From 2013 to 2014, he served a two-and-a-half-year sentence for possession with intent to supply. Upon his release, he graduated from University College London and began working at a Russian news outlet before putting together his media, academic, and under-the-counter expertise to write a book. That book is Dope World, Adventures in the Global Drug Trade, published by St. Martin's Press. Here's Niko Vorobyov. All right, just so just to start, I'd like to have you introduce yourself. Hi, so um, my name's Niko Vrobyov. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was a bit of a naughty boy, and I spent some time um, spent my, some time detained at Her Majesty's Leisure in Britain for um, possessing and selling Class A narcotics. Um, one of the few upsides of uh, being in jail, besides like the free lodging and gym membership, is uh, you get plenty of time to read. So I, I was doing some reading already. Um, I'm not like from the streets. I'm, I grew up in a very kind of middle class intellectual intellectual family. But I, went, I was going to, I was selling at university as well, selling my drugs. But I didn't really take the time to read like as a hobby much, unless I was on vacation or something. But I took the time to read there. And two of the books, especially, one was called El Narco, is a history of the Mexican drug war and another one called uh, Mr. Nice, which is a memoir by this uh, famous Welsh hash smuggler called Howard Marks. Um, they really made me kind of think more about the the bigger picture of things and why I was there. I mean, like the 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 reason I was there was like obvious. I mean, so like I I, I broke the law and I and I got caught kind of quite stupidly. We can get onto that later. Um, but it made me think about kind of like the, the bigger picture and not like, why, why is this legal? Why is this illegal? Why have we taken such measures to, to fight the drug problem, which we, we hadn't actually done, um, about a century ago, like a century ago, everything was legal. You could get cocaine from the nearest pharmacy in a lot of countries. And yeah, eventually when I uh, I got out, someone told me I had a talent for writing because of all the letters I was sending out from prison. So uh, that kind of put me on, got me into. I don't really want to say journalism because that gives me a lot of responsibility. It got me into writing, and um, yeah, I eventually it got to the point where I started traveling to different countries and finding out more about what's going on there. And that's what turned into my first book. Um, I actually got this, the guy, uh, one of the guys whose books I read, so Howard Marks, Mr. Nice, the hash smuggler. So he died, unfortunately, in 2016, I believe. But I reached out to his agent, and his agent became my agent, and that's what got me the book deal. 
Right. So, so your book is called Dope World, Adventures in Drug Lands. So it, it's an interesting book because on the one hand, it's it's part memoir, part travelogue, and then part, you know, investigation into the illegalization of drugs and, and the drug trade, etc. Um, besides that, this kind of in, inspiration, like, how do you... Like, what, what did you want to say with this book? Like, what do you want your readers to, to take from it? I guess the, the main point would be to take from the how much really, like, the, the drug world affects a lot of things around us. So it started, like, uh, wars, revolutions played a big part in our history. So, for example, not a lot of people know that a lot of, um, a lot of the armed forces on all the sides in World War II were on crystal meth. So the, the Allied pilots were given it to keep them awake in missions. The Japanese kamikaze pilots were given it to get fired up uh, before crashing into American airships. And uh, the Germans were given like meth-infused chocolates, I believe which explains why they managed to blitz across Europe so quickly in the early stages. They were just tweaking their way to Paris, basically. The only side I think which didn't use amphetamines actually was the, or wasn't known to use amphetamines on any big level, was the Russians. But the Russians were pretty much shit-faced on, on vodka and antifreeze when the vodka ran out the whole time. So we had our own kind of chemical abuse. And now it's like that was like another thing that I tried to... I try to get across is the sort of it, the the prohibition of different drugs. It doesn't have much to do with like their effect on the human body. It's got a lot more to do with like the culture, society, or like a particular political context. Um, so, for example, in Iran, one thing I noticed was like so alcohol is actually illegal. Drinking is illegal unless you're an infidel, which which means like. Most over there, it's mostly Armenian Christians. There's a lot of Armenians living there, and they're allowed to drink. And I'd be allowed to drink as a as a visitor as well. But for the locals, it's pretty much treated exactly as a drug. So you'd have like your your local like booze dealers. You'd call them up. You'd meet them in some alleyway. You know, they'll give you a six pack. And it's it's seedy as hell, but it's it's the same th- same way that you'd go about like buying weed in London, for example. So so how how did you get into to dealing drugs? As you said, coming from this, uh, you know, your parents were academics. Um, you you are uh, Soviet immigrants to to Britain. So how did you fall in fall into the trade? Yeah, well, no one really wants to be like their parents, do they? It's not cool. <laughs> True. Um. I guess, like for me, um, so the the Russian diaspora, especially where we were in like the southwest of England when we arrived, it wasn't very big. And there's more there's more people there now, mostly from like uh, Latvia and Lithuanian places like that. And like I found the majority of Russians from 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 the motherland that I've run into are like really rich kids in London who I have basically nothing in common with. So I pretty much, I didn't really fit in anywhere I was in, in England. There wasn't a huge uh, immigrant population at that time. It's grown a bit now. So I, I stood out a lot. I didn't really understand like, like British culture. We, we moved around a lot when we were children. I, I was always the new kid in the class. So I never really fit in. And that's what kind of drew me to like the, um, the illegal rave scene. So parties like in uh, somewhere out in the sticks or in an abandoned warehouse, you know, like unlicensed parties that could be raided by the police at any moment. So that's what got me into that. And uh, I started off just selling ecstasy there, MDMA. That was my thing. Uh, eventually, I moved to London for university. I kind of expanded my operation. Um, managed to have a few guys uh, working for me as well, like uh, selling weed on, on my behalf and giving me money at the end of the week. Uh, it was it was fun. By that point, it um, by the time I was in London, mostly grown to, to weed, uh, cannabis, marijuana. That was the thing that really sold because although the MDMA had like the highest profit margin, so uh, you pretty much quadruple your, your investment. It's not like something that people would buy consistently, you know? It's like something people would buy for a party maybe like once a month at most, if, if that. Whereas uh, weed, 
people buy that every day, every day of the week, at all times. It's like uh, it's like coffee, I guess. Like more, a little more niche than coffee, obviously. But it, it I mean, the the consumption patterns is much more casual. Um, and then eventually, uh, so on on London we have this this metro underground network we call it the Cube. And I always told my friends and customers, like, don't take anything on the tube. There are dogs on the tube. So like, one thing the London Metropolitan Police like to do is like to stand on top of the escalators with sniffer dogs. And that's like an easy way for them to rack up a couple of arrests when they need it without really doing much work, if that makes sense. And that day I was kind of in a hurry. Uh, I was actually on my way to meet a friend who was like this gay Russian guy and he needed some MDMA for uh, for going out. Uh, so I just put a couple of wraps in my pocket. Um, I set off and guess what? There were dogs on the tube. And I, I, I got to the top of the escalators and I, like some stations, you can kind of turn around and pretend you're going to a different platform. But there you can't turn around. You'd have to like run down the escalators as soon as you see the police, which is going to look suspicious as hell. So I was kind of counting on, because dogs have quite a limited attention span, like 20, 30 minutes max. So I was hoping that the dogs were just on show by that point. Um, I'm not sure if the dogs actually smelled anything on me or whether they smelled like the, the aroma of like the marijuana I was handling my hands before or like the police just thought i looked suspicious and they they pretended they had they got the dog to sit down or whatever so they had a pretext to search me but yeah next thing i knew i was in a cell um i got released on bail for a while and i got handed to two and a half years uh, so so did you get so this is the thing like i you know here i'm coming from the american perspective right where if you get, did you get caught with with intent to, to distribute, or was it just possession? Well, this this is like another thing that annoys me. See, I didn't actually have that much with me at the time. I had um, three grams, which of, of uh, they they wouldn't have known what it was just by looking at it. So three grams of an unknown powder, which I I could have and tried to blag for myself, but because they were stored in half gram wraps, so they looked like they were six grams. And that that obviously looks suspicious. Why is why would any one person be walking around with six wraps? So that's what gave them the excuse to search my apartment. And one thing that was funny was I wasn't actually there. I was locked up already by that point. But my housemate and another friend of his were there, and they'd actually ordered the pizza half an hour before the feds came. So the pizza man and the police arrived at the same time. And there was just this very confused pizza man walking up the stairs to my apartment, like looking at these police just carrying out their search. I, I you know, I have to say, like you got, so you got two and a half years. I mean, for from an from an American side, that's that's really low. Um, I mean, you would have been. I, I mean, I don't know what the you know a lot of states in the United States have mandatory minimums for for drug possession or even for intent to distribute. So, so what what can you say about the, the this difference in drug laws at the you know in terms of sentencing? Is that considered in in Britain a, a harsh sentence for drugs, or can you put it into some perspective? In Britain, that would be on the sort of. Um you get you could get away with maybe having like a few like uh, cannabis plants or like a small amount like if you're some kind of um, courier or like one of these kids they have they call them county lines kids it's like one of these like 14 15 year olds they're just like recruited into this drug ring and stuff like that and they usually they can get off with like community service or like a fine or some kind of suspension so I was at kind of a higher higher range than that um, one thing I think that got me uh, a little, first of all, was my first offense. But another thing, just like by pure coincidence, um, I actually didn't have that much stuff in my house. I had like half a kilo of weed, um, about an ounce of MDMA, and like a little bit of, not much, like a few grams of cocaine. But um, that was only because I was about to restock, which also means I had a lot of cash there. Um, so they couldn't 
link the cash directly with the drugs, but it did confiscate all the cash. So um, I could have, if if I hadn't been so successful, I could have got a lenient, more lenient sentence, I guess. That, that's really, like I said, coming from, you know, the United States where drug, I mean, until recently where they're starting to rethink this finally, the drug sentences are traditionally really, really harsh. And they were particularly harsh, you know, when I was in my 20s in the 1990s. So um, I, I've... Yeah, I have um, one friend who I talk about in the book called Seth Ferranti. So it was like his first time, first offense as well, nonviolent. And it, was, it wasn't even like a serious drug like crack. It was just, he was arrested for cannabis and LSD. So like the two like least threatening drugs that there are and he got 25 years for that which yeah he only came out in i didn't remember the so he went in like 93 94 and he came out like early 2010s so think about even just like the the level of technology he probably wouldn't even have used the internet much by that point yeah yeah wow well your book is called dope world uh so, well, I, let me ask you a different question. So you, you go to prison. Um, so, you know, that, that experience of, of working in, in, in the drug trade, and one of the things I have, to, I have to say is hearing you describe it, there's a lot of entrepreneurialism going in here in terms, you know, trying to, you know, in terms of understanding the market. Um, and, and I think in your book, you say at one point how it really annoys you and say people who deal drugs don't work. Um, where it clearly sounds like there's an enormous amount of work that goes into this. Uh, so having gone through this experience of dealing drugs, but also being in prison, what do you walk away f- like with with that experience? I think like my, uh, maybe this is just another consequence of getting older and had nothing to do with, with what happened. But I think my sort of risk reward assessment has, has changed somewhat. Um, so I think that's that's one of the reasons why, for example, uh, when when there's a war, it's always like the young men sent to fight a war. It's not necessarily because they're fitter and, and their instincts are sharper, although that's obviously one reason. It's also because none of them actually think that they're going to be the first guy to catch a bullet in an enemy ambush. Now they have this kind of over, not, I wouldn't say overconfidence, but kind of until something happens to you, you don't really imagine that it can happen to you. You know what I mean? It's always like a possibility, like one of those things that always happens to others. But for some reason, you always think you're going to be the lucky one. So that kind of changed me a bit in, in realizing, you know, like shit can go down. So your book is called Dope World. Um, what is Dope World? Dope World, I got that title originally from, there, was, there used to be a, a computer game. I think it was in the 1990s called Dope Wars, where you, it was like a, it wasn't a very advanced game. It's like one of those text-based games where you're like a drug dealer. So the, the only objective really is to buy low, sell high. And occasionally you have to avoid this guy called Officer Hardass. Uh, and so I was thinking about the title of my, of my book because a lot of books, um, about this sort of thing, there's a heavy focus on um, sort of the English-speaking world and South America, because that's presume that's where like the the writers come from. They have more access. So I kind of wanted to write about uh, include some parts of the world which which don't get as much coverage. So places like Iran and Russia and the Philippines, and yeah, so that that's how it came together, really. Oh, I just remembered. Um, Dope, Dope World is also the title of a um, of an album by a Mexican rapper who's now in prison for sex offenses. Now you go through a, 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 a like you said a few minutes ago this history of drugs and how they became illegal. So, what are some some key moments of this history of, of drugs that that stand out to you? Um, I think the main moment. Um, so there's, there's a lot of uh, kind of depending on which book you read or which article you read, there's a lot of different uh, moments where people say like the war on drugs started. So like I think it was in America, like Ronald Reagan, where the, like the expression war on drugs was per- first like properly used. But then before that, some people say it's like a Nixon 19, 1970, 1971, where he said public enemy number one in the United States is drugs and drug abuse. 
and he was the one who started like the DEA and under him, under Nixon, that's when it started getting really politicized because he was also using it as a way to, um, to get at his political opponents. So mainly like uh, black activists and the anti-war left. Or like some people even want to go even further back and get back to the beginning of the 20th century with like all the, the racism and like originally, for example, cocaine, cocaine is the best example. It happened to a lot of different things, it even happened to alcohol. I'm going to use cocaine as an example. So cocaine wasn't banned. They knew like vaguely knew it was bad for you, but they also vaguely knew that smoking was bad for you, like in the 1910s by that point. But they, they didn't ban smoking, but they banned cocaine because cocaine had more associations, especially with um, uh, the recently freed slaves in the Deep South in America. So obviously you had films like uh, Birth of a Nation, this whole sort of racial panic about black guys getting with white girls and, and things like that. And cocaine, obviously, being an aphrodisiac, you know, you can put two and two together. So that's... That's a big reason why cocaine was banned, and you can see that even with um, you can see that with opium, with the Chinese immigrants, you can see it with um, with marijuana, which they renamed marijuana before as cannabis, but they started calling it marijuana because it sounded more Mexican. And you can even see it with alcohol because it was just after World War One finished. There was a lot of kind of anti-German sentiment, and what are the Germans known for? They're known for beer. So that's what kind of helped prohibition get around. That's why prohibition started just after World War One. So there were like some dry movements before that, like the anti saloon league and things like that. But they only got their kind of get up and go, the sort of the popular support after World War One. But I would say that if we're talking about the dope world, then the pivotal point was uh, 1961, where the United States basically. Um, forced the, or didn't, didn't force, I think maybe forced the wrong word, they used their soft power to um, persuade the UN to sign the, the main anti, anti-drug treaty, which outlawed all the key uh, narcotics, so cannabis, um, cocaine, uh, opium, things like that, across the world. So all the UN nations had to ratify this agreement. Interesting. So, so in these other places that you you focused on, you know, East Asia, the or the Philippines, uh, Iran, Russia, was this was this also a pivotal moment for the illegalization of drugs for them as well? I mean, I I know that in in the Soviet Union, you know, I don't I don't think there's been many studies done on on the history of drug use. Uh, though I I remember when I was doing research on the Young Communist League in the twenties. Every once in a while, there'd be uh, documents coming across about hash use or cocaine use amongst uh, Russian youth. Um, well, yeah, it's interesting you bring Russia up. It's something I, I didn't actually cover that much in the book. Maybe I should have. But initially, yeah, cocaine uh, was, especially cocaine was, and morphine were very popular around the sort of end of the Civil War era in Russia and like the, the early communist era. But it was actually outlawed. So it's interesting. So in Russia, in the United States, was, uh, cocaine was outlawed because of a uh, large due to race panic. Whereas in the Soviet Union, it was part of the class war kind of because cocaine was seen as a very bourgeoisie sort of thing. So that's why it was outlawed in the Soviet Union in the twenties. But again, it wasn't. It didn't become kind of very widespread. I think for a long time, Russia's main problem was alcoholism rather than any other drug until at least the 1980s. But um, even though Russia and also China with the opium wars, even though Russia and China, they both had their own um, their own drug prohibitions, they weren't like the ones insisting at the UN that the rest of the world should adopt their policy. That was the United States. So in a lot of countries, for example, India and, and South America, so in India, Ganja use was was traditional as part part of the Hindu religion actually, and in parts of South America, especially Peru and Bolivia, the coca use went that goes back in their culture for about eight thousand years, and now these countries like India and Bolivia, they are told you know that like because of these drug problems in other countries, which has nothing to do with them, they're being told that they've got to abide by these treaties. I think they they managed to get some concessions. So, like in India, 
it's still allowed to drink this stuff called called bang or bang. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I've only seen it written down, which is kind of like a ganja milkshake. So it's it's that's allowed at at Hindu festivals. There's like an exception for it in the UN drug laws. But still, you know that I think I would say 1961 is really the turning point in Nepal. I think hash was was always legal until the 70s. They had out for a while in Britain. And the United Kingdom, you could get heroin on prescription until the 70s, when like the deadline for ratifying the the 1961 treaty was approaching. They they had to do it. You know, I wanted to ask you about there's a there's a drug that's um, I mean, I don't I don't know much about drug use in, in Russia today, but there's a drug. I think it's called crocodile. Yeah, crocodile. Yeah. What, what is what is that? So crocodile, it's uh, started becoming a thing around the late two thousands, I think. It's not so common now. We'll get to that in a in a bit. Basically, there is either a heroin shortage in some areas, for whatever reason. Um, usually, a temporary shortage because um, if there is if there is demand, then supply will will follow. But you know, there can be times when rare occasions where they catch like a big deal, and so for like a few weeks. Or a few days there isn't anything going around or um i guess more commonly uh the user personally just can't afford to buy any heroin and they're not like they haven't turned to like a life of, of crime as such so they prefer they try to kind of make their own heroin or make an opiate at least out of codeine so codeine is an opiate as well as it comes from the opium plant originally just as heroin does and uh, but at the time, the late two thousands, you could buy it over the counter at a pharmacy. I think that since then, there's been some new laws uh, to kind of regulate that a little bit. But at the time, you could anyone could just buy it, and they basically tried to extract the codeine in their kitchen and and shoot up with that. Um, naturally, this did not have very good results. And um, you can see, kind of, it's a very impure product. Like at least like when you get something like heroin, when you buy something like heroin, it's been probably made at like at least a semi-professional level. You know, it's gone through so many hands, like so many different like mafia groups and drug traffickers that they they want a product that people will buy. So there has to be some level of quality. There is no such quality assurance when it's just some dude who's probably high already trying to cook something out of cough syrup in his, in his kitchen. So you can see the results on YouTube, like. Um, some of the people on, on Crocodile, they call it Crocodile because it eats your flesh. So they look like uh, something from, like extras from Dawn of the Dead. But I remember seeing this one video where this guy, he just has his leg and it's then like it's like a stump and then you can see the bone and then it, there's like no flesh around the bone and then there's just a dead foot. And he doesn't feel any pain because like the nerve endings are gone. But it, it, it does not look like something I would put myself through we'll talk about the 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 drug world in in russia and it, it from what i understand it's one of the the main heroin uh places in the world right yeah so that began that started beginning around the um the afghan war in the 80s when you had all these squaddies coming back it picked up like a slight habit back in uh, Afghanistan, where it's actually traditional there. It's uh, opium is a traditional part of uh, Persian culture. So that would be Iran, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, that sort of area. And some of them started smuggling it back as well. And obviously in the 80s, they also had like the, the biggest like the Gorbachev. So like the borders were opening up a bit. It was easy to get stuff from abroad. So it's like Russia was entering the global economy. And that's when, like the, it was like the 1990s when the the economy collapsed and just like the country went into meltdown. That heroin really kind of took off. These days, I think um, it's it's still a very big uh, heroin using country, but I think like the problem perhaps isn't so much heroin these days as uh, synthetics sold on the dark web, which I think is like it's like another reason why. Crocodile, as well as the ingredients being not as available for crocodile, losing some popularity because now you've got stuff like fentanyl coming in from China. So fentanyl is like a synthetic version of heroin, but it's also like 50 times stronger than heroin. So with that coming in, that's kind of taken the market 
edge away from crocodile. I mean, I haven't heard about crocodile being used in a in a while in several years. And and what's the drug culture like in terms of the both the the crime and uh, the role of the government, uh, you know, and and the general kind of culture of drugs. All right, so uh, I guess going back to the nineties when it was like the 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 crazy nineties, Yehidivinosti, as they as they say in Russia, it was a lot more open. Um, and just generally, like the the crime problem in Russia, not just like drug related, just crime in general, was like a lot more in your face. You know, you had like the sort of gangster shootings in broad daylight, stuff like that. Um, then I guess when Putin came along, he kind of integrated the um, the, the various crime syndicates into sort of power vertical. I mean, not him personally necessarily. But, like, there was a, a sense going down, like, the chain of command that, like, don't cause, don't cause trouble and you can do your thing. And there's been kind of, like, a cozy relationship developed between organized crime and various government agencies in Russia. And so, if, especially, like, the, there was an agency called the FSKN, which is, like, the Russia's equivalent of the DEA. And that was widely known to be corrupt and had ties with organized crime groups. There's one of the guys, um, one of the top colonels, I think, he was he was linked to um, one of the leaders of the Tambovskaya crime group in St. Petersburg. And they, the, the Spanish prosecutors found a record of his phone calls and there's like 70 calls in the year or something like that, which is, which is a lot. It's a lot when you're split between two continents. And it eventually got this uh, 2016, I think. The FSKN got too corrupt, even for Russia. So like, there are too many scandals, too many agents caught like making deals, and it just got dissolved. So there's that kind of aspect of it. The, the sort of the, the Gosnaka cartel aspect of it. But now, um, now with everything moving to the dark web, I, I, for example, I personally know very few people who like buy from dealers face to face in Russia. Like when they want to buy something, they'll get off the dark web. And the dark web in Russia is kind of unique in that, um, unlike the websites in the in the West, like the Silk Road was the famous one. Uh, and you could buy stuff. My friends have bought stuff on the Silk Road, and it's just come. I, I never bought stuff on the dark web, by the way, because I don't understand how Bitcoins work. That shit is way too complicated for me. But I have friends who have bought, who've bought it. And it just arrives to, in, to your house by mail. And I guess, like, if the package gets intercepted at some point, probably, like, A, the police aren't going to bother if it's a small amount of drugs. And B, if they do bother, you can just always say, like, I don't know who's sending me these, these, these drugs. I'm outraged. I was about to hand this in. Uh, but you can't you can't do it in Russia because I don't know if you've ever tried getting mail in Russia, but it's it's a bit more of a mission, especially a package. Yeah, yeah, and no one wants to go to the post office and actually sign for like twenty ecstasy pills or like half an ounce of ganja or whatever you'd have it. So what happens in Russia instead is you uh, you get set on this little this little Easter egg hunt. So you send them over the bitcoins, like the the online currency, and then they give you like the GPS coordinates, uh, where to go on Google Maps or or Yandex Maps rather. And there's even like little pictures, like they they have like a picture of a park with like a little red arrow pointing under trees. That's where your stash is. You have to go to this spot in the park, look under this tree or under this park bench or whatever, and that's where it is. But what that's created now is that's also obviously the police are clued up to this system. So um, they use it to extract one of their their infamous. Uh, they they're looking out for teenagers digging around bushes in parks, basically, and they're using that to extract one of their famous on the spot finds. So it's opened up a whole other avenue of corruption for the police. Well, I shouldn't say new because they've been doing that for years, but now they have more opportunity to do it and that's 
Uh, and if, if they don't find anything, they'll happily, something will magically just appear in your pocket. As we saw last year, there was the famous case of the, the journalist, uh, Golnoff, I think his name was. That, that kind of highlighted that issue in the public eye. I want to actually go back to something, you know, and if you can talk about this more, you know, in Russia, it's it's well known about those of us who, from those of us who, you know, know the place that this this relationship between the state and uh, and organized crime uh, is does this relationship exist in other places and, and along when you did you find it in other places when you were doing your research? Where the state is involved, or at least has a either is involved or looks the other way in the activities of organized crime and, and drug dealing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, going outside the the Soviet bloc, I mean, one of the the obvi- most obvious ones of these is definitely Mexico. Or actually, in a way, what's happened in in Russia happened there in reverse. So in Russia, you had like the chaotic nineteen nineties, you know, where you had like a very high crime rate, very high murder rate. I th- I saw like the um, I looked up the stats a while ago. It's the murder rate in Russia in the mid nineties is like comparable to South Africa, Jamaica, Brazil, like all these countries we think about, like the classically dangerous countries. Yeah, I it's come down somewhat with like the advent of of Putin, where it's kind of gone over from direct sort of violent, visibly violent crime to sort of more corruption based kind of like a pyramid where everyone kind of kicks gives kickbacks further and further up the food chain as it were because it's like it's, russia is essentially like a i know like as if it'd be an accurate term but a lot of people would call it a one-party state like de facto there are other parties but de facto there's only really united russia um in mexico it's like the opposite so mexico in the 80s and 90s it was a one-party state as well. It was run by a party called the Institutionary Revolutionary Party, I think. I'm not sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's also incidentally when Mexico... Mexico was still, back then, it was a very big... Um, it was a transit spot between South America and the United States for cocaine. And also, they were also growing their own cannabis, marijuana, and their own opium, which they turned to heroin. And also sent to the United States. So you have like the Mexican black tar heroin, they call it. Uh, but it was like, it was relatively calm. There were like occasional outbursts, but it was relatively calm. But what happened in um, around the year 2000 was Mexico started holding free elections for the first time in its history. And that kind of, that split not only like the, the political power structure, but it also split up the, the underworld power structure. So now you had like a bunch of different mobs, different cartels affiliated with different politicians. You know, there's more tension. There's not as much like security. There wasn't just like a couple of guys running the show. Now there's just like a handful of guys. And that's one of the reasons why the the, the narco violence, like the, the turf wars between the cartels in Mexico is so bad today. There are, there are other reasons as well, but that's one of them. It's like the fragmentation of the um, political underworld alliance. But it's still it's still very much like, especially with certain like the more established crime groups, like the Sinaloa cartel. I went to Sinaloa, and uh, I guess other other organizations like the um, the Gulf Cartel. Uh, they have a lot, they still have like a lot of political power, and this didn't make it into my book because this happened after I was writing it. But one of the in two thousand and six. The president, new president of Mexico, Felipe Calderon, he declared a war, on, like literally a war on the cartels, on some of the cartels. He sent in the troops. But now there's this guy who's his security chief, who's now on trial, uh, or he's awaiting trial in America. He's awaiting trial for picking up bribes on the part of the Sinaloa, car- from the Sinaloa cartel, and basically waging war on their enemies. And then really, if you look at like all the the stats for like, the traffickers who have been captured or, or killed in the, the war on drugs in Mexico. It really does, even though the Sinaloa cartel is like the biggest, most powerful organization then and, and still is now, um, the numbers of traffickers rest are not proportionate, disproportionately from all the groups that are fighting the Sinaloa cartel. 
so in a way it's kind of like a almost like a nationalization of the of the drug business you know you know now in 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 the united states especially there is a um a lot of discussion about of course the legalization of marijuana a couple of states have have fully legalized there's more and more states that have you know medical marijuana uh, which is, you know, almost a de facto legalization. I just actually listened to a radio program yesterday about the de- the legalization or the decriminalization of um, organic, um, like, you know, like uh, psilocybin, um, mushrooms, things like this. And in Washington, D.C., there's a discussion about that. And, and your book is also your position uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is is a call for a legalization of drugs. So what would be your argument for legalizing drugs? And do you mean all drugs or just certain drugs? Because that's also part of a discussion as well. When I first like started looking into it, I thought uh, I was like one of those, yeah, like sort of, I took a very libertarian view. I was kind of like one of those guys like, yeah, everything should be legal. Woo! Just like snorting a line of cocaine off my desk. Um, I guess now my um my standpoints I'm I'm still broadly for that, but I'm like um it's it's a little more more nuanced that so for like different things you should have different approaches. So um the US is the certain states in America, I think they're doing the legalization of cannabis quite well already. They're doing it better than Canada, actually, because can the way Canada's done it's it's squeezing out a lot of the people who would have been imprisoned by the the laws initially and they're kind of leaving it up to big big companies like uh i think i'm not sure if it's corona beer so don't quote me on that but like a big american beer company is uh controlling like billions in stocks in canadian cannabis it's not even not even locally owned it's like big conglomerates whereas like places like colorado they allow more for like the small businessmen sort of mom and pop operations um but with different drugs you should do different different things like i can't imagine i don't th- i don't think it's a good idea i think this will be good for society to have heroin just be sold anywhere over the counter or, or crystal meth but what they're doing in parts of europe and they're thinking about this in the uk as well actually we, we used to have it before uh, in the 70s in the 60s 70s and 80s we used to have heroin on prescription so you could go to a clinic, you could get a um, a dose from a doctor, and it has measurable results. So, like, the the rate of, like, thefts and, and burglaries in the area around the clinic usually falls because there's no reason to steal if you're getting it for free. Number of, level of, like, overdoses falls because, again, like, you're under, A, you're under medical supervision. B, this is, like, clean, like, medically clean product, like the kind of heroin that you might get in the hospital. They actually use heroin as painkillers during childbirth, except they call it diamorphine. But diamorphine heroin, it's, it's literally the same thing. And so, yeah, I think like for some other drugs like heroin, perhaps like a prescription system would work. Um, for others, like say like crystal meth, I don't think necessarily it's, it's a worthwhile idea to legalize crystal meth in a sense. But I feel if you if you allowed other things, so if you allowed like for example ecstasy, or if you allowed like um, like for example a rationed out portion of cocaine, so you could buy like so much cocaine per week if you're if you're like a registered cocaine user or whatever, um, that would take a lot of the market share and like the demand for crystal meth because crystal meth is is a stimulant at the end of the day, and most people who tried crystal meth at some point they haven't tried it with the idea of getting addicted to it they've tried it with the idea of getting a buzz so if you give them something else that's like maybe not as strong and and considered safer as a buzz then that'll just cut a lot of the market share away i do think everything should be decriminalized though so in the sense that it's not um it could still be against the law but it's not an offense like the police don't bother wasting their time with it it's like getting a parking ticket or something, which is what they have in in Portugal. The system they have right now. Yeah, that's the that's the thing about the the you know the the war on drugs is that the the costs of waging that war seem far greater than the the reason to wage it. Right. The 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 amount of in, at least in the United States, the amount of incarceration 
because of the high stakes of, of being in the drug trade, there's more violence. Um, it, it seems like, you know, if anything, it's hard to argue against decriminalization across the board just to, to yeah, to remove all of those other costs of, of something that exists and impossible to eradicate. Now, and finally, in writing this book, uh, and kind of now you're, you know, it's been out for a year and you're, you're constantly having to reflect on it and rewrite certain parts. How has this experience of writing the book changed you? Um, I think I'm quite, I'm more, I before, even uh, after, like the when I first came out of prison and for a few years after, even though like I'd been to, I'd been to, to prison, so I'd seen kind of that side, the other side of life, I was still kind of, Maybe because I I've been to university and like a lot of my friends are also like students or graduates, so I was still kind of in a very uh, liberal bubble, I guess. So it's hard for me to understand how people in other parts of the world or even within my own country, but just like a different part of life in my own country, think. And probably the best example of that would be when I went to the Philippines. So. In the Philippines, they have this president called uh, Rodrigo Duterte. He came to power in 2016. And his solution to the drug problem was literally just shoot everyone. And I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not even exaggerating. He, he like, literally shoot, shoot everyone. Everyone who's like a suspected user or a dealer or even, even people who've like, been scared by all his rhetoric that he's going to kill them, then they, they voluntarily handed themselves in to the authorities. Checked into a rehab clinic or whatever. Even they have like wound up dead, or like sometimes even people had nothing to do with it, but they've been killed like with the pretext of drugs. So like, for so I know like you and me are neighbors. I don't like you. I tell the police you're dealing, and then like a couple of days later, you get a, a knock on the door from some masked gentleman, and should probably get your affairs in order. And it's hard to get an exact number how many people have actually been killed because as well as the police, there's also these death squads. And like it, it's, it's hard to get a, a good estimate. The last report I read from Human Rights Watch was something like 27,000 people have been murdered in the past four years, which is a lot. Would, I mean, like people have died in actual wars, like less people. I think like the... The Ukraine crisis, that was what, like 15,000? I'm not, I'm not trying to kind of play down. Like obviously, I, any loss of life is bad. But I'm just trying to show the scope of what's happening in the Philippines. But what's weird in the Philippines is that uh, a lot of people support him. He has like a crazy level of support. That wouldn't be so weird by itself because I guess like, you'd, you'd imagine like, the, the mentality there is like finally someone is doing something about the crime problem, which has been ignored for too long, which is fair enough. Like Philippines has been led by very corrupt rulers for a very long time who've done nothing to solve poverty or things like that. But what is weird is some of the families of people I talked to also supported the um, of vict- of pe- families of people being killed that I talked to also supported like the anti-drug campaign. Like I guess the way they framed it was like their like um, their husbands or their boyfriends or their brothers sisters death. It was like a mistake in an otherwise worthy cause. You know, it was like a misstep. Accidents happen. I guess is like their mentality. That was Nico Vorobyov. Nico was born in Leningrad, Russia, before moving to Great Britain. From 2013 to 2014. He served a a two-and-a-half-year sentence for possession with intent to supply. Upon his release, he graduated from University College London and began working at a Russian news outlet before putting together his media, academic, and under-the-counter expertise to write a book. That book is Dope World, Adventures in the Global Drug Trade, published by St. Martin's Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. 
like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblest nisses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.